1: has Greek roots meaning without nourishment to muscles. What happens when our nerve cells stop communicating with our muscle cells? Loss of signals to the cells. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode of our 22nd season providing health information based on science built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss ALS, symptoms, causes, and treatment. Joining us to address this topic is Dr. Tyler Jarris from Avera Medical Group Palliative Medicine Sioux Falls and Dr. Namdi Uhegu from Sanford Neurology Clinic. Welcome, and thanks to you for joining us today in the studio here in Brookings on the campus of South Dakota State University. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Jaris.
2: Um Yeah, sure. Um, so I, of course, work for Avera. Um, I work in palliative medicine and hospice care as well. Um, so I see patients with um, you know, chronic disease, chronic illness, and I provide sort of supportive care to patients and families, helping out with things like symptom management, um, advanced care planning. Um, I'm originally um, from, well, South Dakota, uh, kind of uh, grew up in Aberdeen. Um, I went to school in the Brookings area, medical school here in South Dakota. Um, and I've been practicing in South Dakota for the last 10 years, or so worked for Rivera for the last 10 years.
1: Excellent. So coming home to campus here, it looks different though, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> I don't
2: recognize it at all. So, all right.
1: Yep. So, Dr. Namdi, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, I'm um, Namdi I'm originally from Nigeria. Um, did my neurology residency training at um, JFK Medical Center in Edison, New Jersey. Also did a fellowship in neurophysiology there. Then Before starting to work with um, Samford. So I do neurology, neurophysiology, and um, see patients with neuromuscular disorders like ALS as well. So I do the EMGs, do the nerve conduction studies, we try to make the diagnosis, start off their treatment, discuss with them, and of course, um, you know, involved with other providers in the multidisciplinary approach to care.
1: Excellent. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about ALS. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page we will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question if you would like to be entered into the drawing for a Prairie Dock gift item. Well, gentlemen, ALS, it's it's abbreviated, but it's actually a a bigger, kind of more of a tongue twister, that amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I don't know why medical things have to have such (laughs) tongue twister names, or as a lot of people call it, Lou Gehrig's disease. So um, Dr. Namdia, how often are you seeing patients with this? Is this a fairly common diagnosis that you treat? Yeah,
3: it's surprisingly you know, common. Uh, it, it, across the US, um, it's estimated that about one to five persons uh, per 100,000 um, are diagnosed or living with ALS. So it's something that uh, probably um In my practice, we probably see one diagnosis uh, maybe every quarter. so it has the same incidence as say something like multiple sclerosis, which you know people hear more about. Um, so it's a rather more uh, a rather more common disorder than you know we are giving it credit for.
1: And is uh, there a country that has a higher incidence? Is it, or ethnicity, that has a higher risk for this?
3: So, um, the the data does suggest that it seems to be a little more common in um, Caucasians of European uh, descent. And then there are some clusters, you know, data has found um, clusters in certain populations, like they talk about, but not in the U.S., like Guam Island, I think, um, had particularly, you know, um higher incidence than the rest of you know the world for reasons that no one is quite sure um and then they talk about some areas in um, new guinea that also had um, um you know a relatively higher um, concentration than other parts of the world but in the in the us is a little more common among um, you know caucasians of european descent than other other groups.
1: Okay. Um, can you kind of explain what exactly is ALS? What does it do to the body?
3: So um, you know, like the name says, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. is just a play on the on what it does. So amyotrophy, just loss of muscles. So the muscles stop functioning, lose. Um, uh, because they are not functioning due to loss of nerve supply to them, they shrink up, become atrophic. Um, clinically, the people lose function. You know what the muscles are supposed to do, and then the lateral sclerosis part, because some pathology, uh, the um, there is gliosis or so, you know sclerosis in the lateral uh, corticospinal tract. So the I think back in um, 18-something when uh, Dr. Chakot gave the name, Mm -hmm. he used the clinical, what he presents with, which is the loss of muscle, Mm -hmm. plus what he saw in pathology, which was the sclerosis in the lateral corticospinal tract, and then came up with um, the name amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. But we also call it motor neuron disease now. Sometimes we use it interchangeably. So sometimes you hear people say motor neuron disease, although that's a little more of a spectrum, you know, that includes a little more things than ALS. And then, of course, the Lou Gehrig's disease is called because of um, you know Lou Gehrig, who you know who is a well-known um, baseball player that you know was diagnosed with it in the 1930s, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. All right. Well. Uh Dr. Jarris, talk a little bit about the patients that you see with ALS. How do you help them and uh, especially like mental health aspects or
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, you know, unfortunately we see patients of all ages um with ALS. Um so um, we use kind of a, a multidisciplinary approach kind of similar to like maybe an ALS clinic but from a more of a palliative perspective so we're there to support patients from like the psychosocial perspective because sometimes there's family or financial or just other social concerns happening um, we're there to support them uh, you know with emotional needs emotional distress um, even existential concerns if we need, can help them with spiritual concerns um, we try to do that as well. Um, we. You know, u- utilizing like our like our social work team, um, our nursing team, we definitely help with just like helping out with resources, resource just sort of acquisition, if you will, helping out with in-home services and home care, and um, making sure that patients and families have what they need, even outside of what ALS and ALS clinic and ALS association sometimes has to offer. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of there for kind of a whole team approach, to helping out the whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah just be helpful
1: all right well this kind of uh, flows into a question we have from a caller in Sioux Falls said to what extent does emotional well-being or mental health positively or negatively affect outcomes with ALS Mm
3: -hmm. uh, you know one thing um, we always pay emphasis on in medicine is that you know the the human being is a whole, so even apart from physical things, our emotional well-being plays a role in you know how well we do with different um, disorders, not just ALS. And um, because ALS, unfortunately, is such a um, it's a huge diagnosis and maybe when we talk about it later we don't have a cure for it so that becomes an emotional burden on not just the patient but also families of um, you know people who have been diagnosed with with this and the emotional well-being if it's taking care of helps the patient know that okay this diagnosis is not the end of the road doesn't doesn't mean a death sentence it doesn't mean there is nothing that can be done there are ways of slowing the disease down and the emphasis like um, some people say would be on life not on the diagnosis of ALS and that's where the emotional you know the that emotional support comes in so the patient you know um, still um, knows that yeah it's a degenerative disease with no cure but there it can be slowed down the supportive care helps the person deal better with it still enjoy what they need to enjoy and those who do that will do much better than um, Um, someone who just takes it as a death sentence and then just gives up on you know the options that are there.
1: Okay. What are some of the ways or medications that uh, we use now to try to slow down the progression of this disease?
3: um, We we have three medications that are FDA approved for for ALS. The oldest is uh, Reluxol. So uh, the it's been around for quite a while, and um, the, the what happens with ALS is that for some reason we have neuronal cell death. You know, so the medications all try to, you know, slow down the cell death. Um, the RELUXO, it's a tablet that has to be taken twice a day, generally well tolerated, and it shows benefits by slowing disease, people who are on it compared to those who are not have a few months of uh, survivor benefit, and um, delayed um, progression in, or in functional decline, um, had been around for a long time. Before, more recently, there is also radicava, which is um, a, a I shouldn't be, it's in the the you know, trade names. So Edoverone is also approved and that again, all these, they work on reducing the cell death which is what um, is the underlying pathology in um, in ALS. So when combined with the there is added benefit and more recently, I think September last year, the third medication was approved again phenibutary and uh, uh, that again showed benefit in slowing progression. None of this is a cure, but those who are on the medications um, um, have a slowing of functional decline compared to those who are not. Mm
1: -hmm. And Dr. Juris, what sort of things do you do with palliative care to help kind of uh, support patients and treat the symptoms where you're not treating the disease but the impact that it's having.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, I want um, the patients that I'm seeing to be as successful as they possibly can, and really, that's a lot of what we do in palliative medicine. You know say like for cancer for instance, I, if I can treat someone's nausea, they can do maybe chemotherapy or immunotherapy longer. And, and for ALS, I kind of view that the same way. You know, if I can help someone's muscle spasms or fatigue or issues with um, producing you know, too much secretions or saliva um, or help them with sleeping or help their, their mood or anxiety, you know, I feel like that they can be more successful for longer. Um, maybe do you know, maybe better with these medications for longer, or even be involved in things like clinical trial and things like that. So that's that's kind of my place, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh,
3: um, you know, apart from the medications we talked about, you know, the the you know, the supports like uh, he of us. That's really important for the patients, and then, you know, other um, specialists also play a significant role, you know, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Um, the most common um, cause of death would be respiratory failure, so respiratory support is absolutely important, especially even if it's just at night to help, you know, their breathing, that way they have more energy during the day so people who you know are under respiratory support do way better than those who are not. So all those, um, apart from you know the medications that slow things down, the non-medication therapies and um, symptom management is also important and makes the patient very comfortable, I mean at least so they get to enjoy the things they need to enjoy and do the things, remain functional for as
1: long as possible. All right, excellent, so mm. definitely sounds like a teams-based approach where not just one yeah. person is, is dealing with all of this. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Well, ALS can affect anyone, leading to loss of motor control throughout the body, it can be a slow, terrible disease to witness. One family in Brookings has been dealing with that for over two years. Prairie Duck reporter Sam Schauer shares with us their struggles with ALS.
4: Mark Crotaville is the husband to Patty who suffers from ALS. They first noticed symptoms in 2020 from Patty falling downstairs, followed by slurred speech. The,
3: doc- the doctor here didn't really know what it was. Finally, they figured it had to be neurological and, and that's yes. when they referred her.
4: Because of COVID-19, Patty's daughter, Lori, was with her every day, and she didn't recognize many of the signs. I didn't see it as much,
5: because we saw each other so you know every day and didn't see things progressing. And so it, when it was like, when things started being diagnosed, it was kind of like, well, how did that happen?
4: She went to Sioux Falls before being officially diagnosed with ALS in September of 2021. Soon after, she started to lose feeling in her left leg before spreading to both legs. We
5: uh, walked until (laughs) we couldn't walk anymore, but now we go to um, exercise three days a week at the Methodist church and um, do that together.
4: Because of her inability to speak, she communicates through writing messages. She also must be assisted in many things in her day-to-day life, like a vest that shakes her lungs to help her breathe.
3: One of the problems with ALS is is we understand that uh, breathing problems, inability to control the muscles in your chest and you can't breathe fully.
4: And while it's a struggle for Patty, she has a couple key pieces that help her keep going.
3: She says my grandkids and my daughter and son-in-law help perk my spirit. <laughs> they are they are pretty good treatment for both of us.
1: So, are there symptoms that family members or people should be looking for if to that would make them suspicious for ALS or want to pursue that diagnosis further to make sure we're catching it in the earliest phases?
3: So, if we the symptoms would be you know the symptoms that would um, derive from the way the disease happens, which is you know the death of the nerves that. Control voluntary muscles, so usually it will either start in the limbs, in the arm or in the leg. Um, more commonly, less commonly, it can also start with the bulbar muscles, the muscles for speaking or swallowing. If it starts in the arm or upper extremities, then things like you know hand muscle weakness, suddenly not being able to do the things you know the person um, would be able to do. Um, usually, we start in one arm and gradually, you know, starts, like the hand gradually progress to involve other muscles in that arm and then may spread to other muscles. If it's in the leg, then things like, you know, someone who suddenly starts having a dropped foot, feels like their foot is slapping the ground when they walk or they are tripping over themselves suddenly, falling over suddenly, where they cannot, you know, explain it. It's a, that would be weakness. Then the other common presentation will be, you know, muscle twitching. Muscles, if they lose their, mu- their nerve supply, you know, begin to twitch, what we call fasciculations. Um, everybody's gonna get a twitch now and then. You know, 70% of the population will get a twitch. In some people, it becomes common. So, one thing we try to reassure people is, it's not every twitch that is ALS. It's not every weakness that is ALS but if it's happening and it's not you know um, going away it's probably something the person should talk to their doctor who would examine and look for other things that you know would point to the diagnosis um, and then of course slow speech or difficulty swallowing you know if it um, involves the Throat muzzles. If those things, if anyone notices those things and it doesn't seem to be going away, they should probably talk to their primary doctor. And then who should be able to look at it and say, "Oh, I think I'm worried about this, and we should have a neurologist see you."
1: All right. And a viewers asking, uh, is there anything that can be done to prevent ALS, especially like uh, nutritional? Prof- Um, perspective, you know, certain foods they need to eat or diet or?
3: Um, So uh, there is nothing that we as certain that would prevent it. A lot of the time, ninety percent of the time is a sporadic thing that just happens Mm -hmm. and we can't really say why. The only risk factors that, you know, we that have clearly been proven would be Um, the few people who have familiar ALS which is uncommon about five you know percent or at most ten percent and then age and we can't change our age. Now cigarette smoking um, data does suggest that it seems to be a little more common among cigarette smokers and since smoking is not something that has any benefit anyway, so at, le- at least that's something that can be stopped. But otherwise, nutrition-wise, nothing else that has been proven to you know, be a cause here that we, we, you know, we would need to change to prevent it.
1: All right, well, we have a Facebook viewer that stated that their mother died almost 40 years ago and she had ALS. Are there better treatments now than 40 years ago when her mother had this?
3: yeah they, they certainly like um, um you know if if even if we go back five, six years ago, all we had was uh, reloxone. now we have other medications, you know we have the Edavarone, which used to be an infusion, now a tablet. We have the newly approved one. So we have more medications now that seem to slow it down. But more importantly, we understand it a little better, and we know that even the non-medication things, you know, help in uh, improving survival and patient comfort. Like, you talked about respiratory support, talked about, you know, the place of physical therapy, the place of palliative care. So. All those things we have now, unfortunately, 40 years ago we didn't really know that much about this to offer that uh, multidisciplinary, you know, care. So you know, things are better now, and the good thing about um, where we are is that probably, in, you know, there are so much research going on now that I do feel more and more things are coming out. Um, you know, so and even now. Some of the genetic ones, there is a genetic therapy available, you know, if it does t- turn out to be a familiar ALS and has maybe the, a certain mutation. You know, there is a gene therapy that has just been approved as
2: well. You kind know, of like in my clinic especially too, like I feel like our communication advances have been r- really good, our symptom management advances, our care planning for the future, um, even like how people with ALS just sort of are able to be transported, maneuver, move, you know, within their own homes or through the community. And then just the support systems that are just in place now. um, Again, and then what we have just, you know, again, to support sort of research and advancement is, yeah, way more than what we had all those years ago.
1: Excellent. Well, Dr. Juris, there's a perfect question that came in for you. It said, when a patient enters palliative care, how many times do they have visits and what happens when they can no longer get to places or it's hard to get to these visits?
2: Sure. Well, so how I've been doing my clinic anyway, um, um, I tend to schedule folks with ALS to see me and hopefully with their families as well, um, to see me pretty much every time they have ALS clinic, which tends to be about every three months or so, three or four months so that way we can talk about symptom management, talk about care planning, talk about the future, help with advanced directives, those kind of things. Uh, when those patients can't get to me, um, we do home visits if need be, go to nursing home, or if they might be out of town or just within the community because of weather um, or just health or whatever, uh, we do telehealth you know, um, visits over the video camera.
1: Has that gotten easier after the pandemic, now that we've yes. all gotten used to, yeah. to Zoom and virtual yeah. visits? I
2: think so, actually. Yeah, and I think, um, and I think families and patients appreciate it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know, anybody hopes to get out of their home mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and be able to be out in the community, but um, we, we try to do whatever we can for our patients.
1: Excellent. So um, both of you, what types of resources are available to caregivers? To help support when someone's diagnosed with ALS, because I think a lot does fall on the the family members as the disease progresses. So you, you
3: know the there is the ALS Association, which does you know wonderful job. You know, to the, the, every state has one, and luckily you know South Dakota has a very strong um, ALS Association. They are you know on point, reach out to the patient if anyone has this and they get in touch with them, you know, they at least support in terms of helping families understand better because a lot of them are people who have had to deal with this themselves, Um, so they have first-hand understanding of what these patients and their families are going through and um they have materials too which they are often either providing or able to lend out and the ALS clinics you know would take like the there are social workers who would be there we do have the social workers who you know would often reach out to them find out what they need see how they can be helped with those things we have the behavioral health people there too to help with their emotional support so the 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 thing would be you know um families being um aware of these things that are available and then u- utilizing them you know just to help with coping um with this um with this uh, disease okay.
2: Yeah, and I think additionally too, um, and I don't know if I can really like name drop particular organizations outside of ALSA, <laughs> but um, I think through the state, um, uh, Dakota at Home, I think is like an organization that's often used um, because you can have like a caseworker, or case manager that can help to set up like different types of in-home care with various mm-hmm. agencies, um, even helping with respite for, for caregivers and care providers. And there are some some agencies within the state that might help with if there are like, like access needs, like helping with building ramps or getting like, a, like, a, like a, a different kind of shower or toilet or whatever within the home built, you know, remodeling kind of things. There are some just various entities that sort of exist and, um, you know, powder medicine, but, you know, or ALS, you know, utilizing your social worker can be r- really important. And that's why I always encourage folks with ALS to go to like ALS clinic or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or whatever, wherever they need to be so that they can have that social worker support.
1: Excellent. So, Lots of things that are needed to help yeah. be, have people be successful in their own homes for as long as yeah. possible. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well starting almost 15 years ago the ALS clinic in Sioux Falls has helped many patients in their efforts to slow down the disease and provide easy access to all health professionals needed for the care in one location. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer takes us to the clinic to see those efforts.
4: Becky Emerson is the coordinator for the ALS clinic in Sioux Falls. Her role is to help patients through the clinic and see all the needed specialists. It's called a multidisciplinary clinic and
5: that means that there are several specialists involved in this clinic, each one focused on individual or different types of needs for the ALS patient as well as their caregiver.
4: The clinic meets once a month and can see around five to six patients from all over the region. A single patient usually comes every three months.
5: And depending on their, um, their status, again, sometimes we can stretch that out to six months, but just to touch base with them about every three months. Amazingly, things can really change in a matter of three months for these folks.
4: The clinic specialists help in a variety of ways, from respiratory and speech therapists to dietitians
5: who helps see what the patient's nutritional status is. Are they losing weight? Do they now require a tube into their stomach for nutrition?
4: The clinic also provides care and movement-based therapy, like physical and occupational therapy. They
5: um, assess the patient's activity and abilities throughout the day, activities of daily living that we all take for granted that are becoming difficult as our arms and legs get
4: weaker from that condition. What benefits the patient is all the specialists are in a room together and they can provide care or medication which Emerson says is a big win for the patients. To get all of these needs addressed in one
5: setting is really remarkable and eventually transportation becomes difficult for patients and so to be able to get all these needs met and, and assessed in one setting is, is key for them.
1: so kind of talking about the prognosis with this disease so how long does a typical patient have from the time they're diagnosed to uh, they pass away
3: so on on the average you know um, uh, life expectancy will be about three to five years from Mm -hmm. the time of diagnosis sometimes um, you know some patients can live for much longer than that, but on the average is about three to five years um, from the time the diagnosis was made.
1: I think we have to talk about Stephen Hawken as one of those outliers that so over 50 years that he lived with that diagnosis?
3: Yeah, you know, the, the, like um, the the, in you know in, in the UK the, they would um, use motor neuron disease. So and motor neuron disease, like we said earlier, is a spectrum. So um, and here we would specify ALS. And then there are the spectrum would include things like progressive muscular atrophy, which is a purely lower motor neuron thing that you know progresses uh, slower. Primary lateral sclerosis, which again is a part of that spectrum, that you know life expectancy is indicates not um, so. I of course don't have his medical record, so I don't know exactly what kind of motor neuron disease he had because the UK they would just classify it okay, as motor neuron. Mind. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so. All right.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, um, ALS. What other things are, diagnoses are commonly confused with, or misdiagnosed, or um, or have to be on the differential when you're looking for those symptoms of ALS, with the weakness, and mm. the twitching, and what other things do we need to rule out before we say, yep, it's ALS?
3: So, you know, the the, 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 usually, you know, the mimics, we call them, or things we need to rule out would be, maybe, some myelopathies, or, you know, any, Compression of the spinal cord higher up in the cervical spine, which is why we would usually get MRIs, you know, make sure there is no no compressive um, um, pathology. Then sometimes some other things, but they, they usually won't have all the futures. So things like Kennedy's disease, which is a, um, a hereditary uh, muscular disorder, but a, that will be only lower motor neurons syn- but they cannot have weakness, but on examination they will look a little different. But the the, the key would be that, um, you know, for um, ALS, you know, the way to involve multiple segments, there are very few things, almost, you know, unless there are two diseases going on in the same person, is difficult to find something that would do exactly what ALS does unless someone has two different things you know going on at the same time
1: alright well a viewer said is there any genetic testing for this uh, their mother passed away with ALS and so did an aunt uh, died they both died at age 62 and 64 this person's 59 and I had a cousin that passed away very quickly. Is there any genetic testing to kind of see what your risk is with those family cases?
3: The, the you know, like, like you know we were saying earlier, the um, 90 to 95 percent of ALS would be sporadic not familial. Now five, about 5 percent would be familial and there have been certain genes you know that have been found to uh, be, uh, found in familiar ALS things like C9 or uh, cf 9 I'm not even <laughs> sure, I can't remember <laughs> the name now, SOD mutations, certain mutations that um, you know have been seen in familiar cases. That's why again, a- an ALS clinic would include a genetic counselor. Okay. So that the family, you know, they get that. Um, in as much as we know that most overwhelmingly, most of them are sporadic things that just happen, that wouldn't happen to anybody else in the family. But there is always that, you know, genetic testing is something that is such, so involved, and that before we do it, we have a genetic counselor at least, you know, speak with them, explain the genes that are possible, and you know, then they can. Um, so certainly if someone has a family history of two, then it's something that should be considered, you know, doing genetic testing, especially now that, um, like I mentioned, the SOD mutation, there is a gene therapy specifically developed for that oh. that is FDA approved, so if it turns out someone has that, there is, you know, a different medication for it. Okay, mm. So it's
1: very important information to yeah, get. Yeah. So. So talk with your regular doctor to say, I need a referral to a genetic, a genetic counselor. counselor? Yeah. Okay, so that yeah. would be the person that could do that testing. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, Dr. Jaris, um do ALS patients have any pain associated with the disease, especially as it progresses?
2: Um, I mean, truthfully, I've had some patients with almost no pain. I mean, really, and I've had some patients that have had um, just kind of varying degrees of pain, uh, kind of depending upon whether or not they have issues with uh, spasms or neuropathy, um, like nerve-type pain, I guess. Um, and certainly we we do kind of a variety of things to help to control or manage that pain to improve quality of life.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent, and when someone is nearing the end of ALS, uh, kind of talk us through what's that progression like? How do you know when they're getting sure. close?
2: I mean honestly um, you know standard of care for ALS really can include things like um, you know um, breathing support a breathing machine support or a feeding tube and sometimes it almost depends kind of what patients may or may not you know as far as what they selected for their care. Um, So you know I think. In terms of end of life, you know, maybe selecting sort of hospice type care, Um, you know, and hospice certainly is a part of what palliative medicine does, but we're talking about someone in the last six months or maybe even the last year of life, really. Um, You know, there tends to be more of a focus on controlling things like um, any feelings of shortness of breath, helping out with pain, um, helping out with anxiety, especially if the anxiety and breathing are sort of um, kind of commingling with each other, if you will. Um, and then just being very supportive of any sort of existential concerns, family concerns, some things like that. And I think it can, again, depend upon, um, that management directly depends upon, you know, um, is that patient needing just help with shortness of breath or do they need help sort of transitioning away from a breathing machine, mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Okay. Can you kind of explain yeah. to our viewers the difference between palliative care and hospice? I knew the, it, the terms get kind of thrown around interchangeably, yeah. but they are two separate and different entities. Yeah.
2: yeah. So. You know, like I kind of mentioned, I mean, hospice is a part of palliative medicine, but palliative medicine is more of that focus on sort of chronic disease, chronic management, uh, that extra layer, blanket of care, supporting patients and families, helping them to navigate medical care, the medical system, symptom management, care planning. Whereas hospice is really truly that focus on end of life care, that last six months of life, that last year of life two physicians getting together to say we think this person has a terminal illness and that this terminal illness will take their life and then sort of bring that team to them to support them that you know consists of you know, you know nurses, aides, um, uh, chaplaincy, um, you know pharmacy support, physicians, um, m- music support, massage, I mean all, all kinds of wonderful people that come to the bedside to support patients and families um, throughout that journey. Okay.
1: So so very, um, so when you, someone says, I want to send you to palliative care, it's not saying that we've given right. up and we, don't, right. we think you're going to die, right. which is a, honestly a common misconception that, oh, you're giving up, you're sending me to palliative care.
2: Yeah, you know, I think in palliative care, we really try to make sure we help people to, um, to sort of, well, not look at life in a different way, if you will, but um, try to maybe look at like hope in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people come in and they're like hoping for a cure, and hospice does this too, but it might be like hoping, you know, for that family get together, or hoping to be reconnected with that long lost son, or, mm-hmm. you know, hoping to live to this event, or, you know, to just hoping to breathe. You yeah. know, I mean, just stuff like that. And that's what that's what we help with, mm-hmm. on both sides of that actually. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Yep. All right. Well, wow, this has a, been a very informative, I think I've learned more about ALS than I did during medical school, so yeah, yeah, really yeah. appreciated both of you guys uh, okay. sharing this expertise mm-hmm. with us tonight and our viewers, like I said, it's not something that a lot of people know someone yeah. with compared right. to something like diabetes yeah. or right. migraines, yeah. right. you know, so definitely we're glad that you are able to share this topic with our viewers. Yeah. Is there anything else that um, you see on the horizon for treatment of this or research? Um,
3: so th- There are a couple of gene therapies going on and um, uh, because of the pathology, the you know, understanding of the pathology that it's um, um, neurotoxicity from different things. There are a couple of medications that have been tried to reduce that excitotoxicity. Um, it's a constantly going, uh, ongoing process and the way, you know, for a long time we only had Reluxol and within a few years we are having more things. I do feel, you know, there are so many things on the horizon now which will suggest that there is hope, you know, for for newer medications, especially with the gene therapy, um, you know, approach of, uh, you know, that are being tried out now.
1: Excellent. What's the most challenging thing that uh, your patients have to face and deal with um, that you help?
2: I, I think it's just how ALS affects their, just their lives. I mean, really, I mean, it affects their ability to work, it affects their families, it affects their children. Um, it affects their, their their mental health their physical health their even their spiritual well-being mm-hmm. i think honestly that's probably one of the biggest things yeah. or all the biggest things okay. so yeah. okay.
1: and dr Namdi, could you talk a little bit more about the gene therapy how does that work what's entailed with that
3: so you know like um Leah was talking about the one that has been approved which is um the therapy for patients who have that um, SOD mutation. It's an intrathecal injection, and what it just, uh, with um, ALS there is, um, you know, different um, hypotheses on the exact mechanism of neuronal death. We know the neurons die, but how it happens. So, a lot of the, the gene therapy medica- uh, trials focus on trying to reduce the accumulation of abnormal proteins, um, like RNA messenger, uh, uh, um, RNA processing, you know, abnormal RNA processing leads to abnormal de- accumulation of proteins, which we will see on autopsy of patients who have ALS. So there is a lot of focus on trying to, you know, see if we can reduce that abnormal accumulation of proteins, and. The only one that has shown you know, effectiveness is the Tofasen, which is for the people with SOD mutation. And even the patients, we say there are 90% that are sporadic, but those still have some, you know, they still have, um, it's just that it's not familiar, but more of a spontaneous mutation. So these gene therapies may still be useful for them, you know, um, the more we get those available.
1: All right, well, last viewer question here. Uh, I think that perfect one for Dr. Juras said, uh, do you see a lot of mental health issues surrounding the diagnosis, especially since there is no cure?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of patients that sort of come to clinic, um, you know, fortunately, they've, a lot of them have gone to ALS clinic. They've had a lot of information, education, Uh, Sort of you know just introduction in general, but I think you know when they do come to clinic there's there tends to be Well low mood. I mean (laughs) for a lot of reasons right Um, and then I think a lot of anxiety about just the future um, About you know, whatever's going on at the time swallowing difficulties breathing difficulties pain control, you know the future things like that, so um, yeah, I think uh, mental health plays a big part, so um, talking that through with patients, helping with medications, counseling, referring for counseling, you know, whatever we need to do. Making sure they have their, their spiritual support, of course, as well. All right. And, yeah, team approach.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, wonderful. Well, I think this is the perfect close to a wonderful discussion this evening. You both were very eloquent, and thank you so much for sharing your expertise here. So. The winner of our prize tonight is Diane from Brookings. Thank you, Diane, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this.
0: Have you downloaded and subscribed to the Prairie Doc podcast? Health professionals join host Laura Ellsworth each week to discuss and take questions about timely medical information. Search Prairie Doc on Apple, Spotify, SoundClouds,
1: or wherever you find podcasts today. On July 4th, 1939, Lou Gehrig said these famous words at Yankee Stadium. For the past two weeks, you have been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The bad break he was referring to was the diagnosis of a condition that would become synonymous with him, a neuromuscular condition called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. ALS is a disease which causes motor nerves in the brain and spinal cord to break down. This reduces the nerve's ability to control muscle function, leading to muscle weakness, twitching, and wasting away. As the disease progresses, it slowly impairs the person's ability to walk, talk, swallow, and breathe. Lou Gehrig was only 36 years old when he was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. However, it is more commonly diagnosed between the ages of 55 and 75. He lived less than two years after his diagnosis with ALS. Today, the average life expectancy after diagnosis is two to five years. But some people with this disease can live much longer. The famous physicist Stephen Hawking lived for more than 50 years after he was diagnosed with ALS. The cause of ALS is still unknown. Almost all cases are considered sporadic, while only 5 to 10 percent are thought to be inherited. One study suggested smoking may increase a person's risk for developing ALS. Military veterans also have an increased risk of developing ALS compared to civilians. Currently, there is no single test that can predict or diagnose ALS. It is based on symptoms and a multitude of tests. While there are treatments and medications that can slow the progression of the disease, there is no cure. But research is still ongoing. Over 80 years later, the final words of Lou Gehrig's speech still serve as inspiration. So I close by saying that I may have had a tough break but I have an awful lot to live for. Major League Baseball holds Lou Gehrig Day every year on June 2nd. That day marks both the anniversary of when he became the starting first baseman for the New York Yankees, and the day he passed away in 1941. On this day, Major League Baseball raises funds to help research ALS, to find better treatments and hopefully find a cure. Lou Gehrig's optimism and tenacity in the face of such a life-changing diagnosis makes it no wonder that most people know ALS as Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, thank you to our guests, Dr. Jarris and Dr. Uegu, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about ALS. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and listen to us live every Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings, Or online and be sure to look for the podcast of this program Prairie Doc on call wherever podcasts can be found from all of us here at on call with the Prairie Doc thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust until next time stay healthy out there people
0: Breast cancer survival rates have increased and deaths are on the decline. Learn about a new personalized approach to treatment and research. Beating breast cancer, next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc.
6: I'm Carter Holm, and uh, I have been a nurse for about eight and a half years. Worked for the first half of my career in a nursing home, uh, but now I'm at a Vera McKinnon inpatient rehab. My dad worked with On Call, at the Prairie Doc and started the Healing Words Foundation. And uh, after he passed, we decided as a family that we would take turns on the board to represent uh, what we feel is our dad's best wishes. So I feel like I've been involved with it my whole life, but uh, specifically the last two years working on the board. It's an incredible resource for our community, and um, with the, the hard work of the volunteers we're providing a resource to the community of South Dakota that is pretty rare to help prevent people from needing to go to the hospital you know to prevent the spread of misinformation you know providing that science-based approach uh, really was a passion of my dad's and something that we we're really're we're really honored to continue. It gives people that first step because it's a way that we can talk to our physician without having to make an appointment or having to wait or having to frankly spend any money. You know, a free service to help provide information, helping prevent potential hospital stays or more serious health issues. Dad was a physician, my mom uh, a nurse practitioner. When I graduated from high school, the one thing I knew was I did not want to go into medicine. (laughs) And then as I grew and matured, the idea of having a stable career that allowed me to help people became sort of my driving focus. And uh, On Call with the Prairie Doc started so long ago with the idea of helping people. It has inspired me in that you know I'm a professional nurse, but I'm a helper first and foremost. For more information or to donate, go to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support. <music>
0: Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health
6: system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello possibility, hello healthy.
0: Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings-Madison-Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.